0: all right good evening everybody you want to go ahead and find your places we will uh we'll go ahead and get started if you got your bibles and you'd like to follow along uh romans chapter 12 and verses 4 through 8 romans chapter 12 verses 4 through 8 we're going to continue our lesson from last week um uh in talking about the spiritual gifts or the gifts of the spirit now, uh, this is part two, and we will finish it up next. Uh, well, we'll finish it up in a couple of weeks uh, with part three. Let's begin uh, by reading verses four and five. Paul says this, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So what Paul does in these two verses uh, here is he gives us a metaphor Uh, He says, for as in one body we have many members, and he's talking, of course, about the human body. And he says, in the same way, we in the church or or river of life or the body of Christ, uh, we have many members. And he's talking about us as individual people, yet we are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. Now, when Paul looks for a metaphor, he looks for a comparison for the church, uh, he doesn't compare us to a team doesn't compare us to the Lions Club. He doesn't compare us to any organization. Now, someone said to me one time, well, of course he didn't compare it to a football team because there was no football team. Of course he didn't compare it to the Lions Club because there was no Lions Club. But you understand, Paul had plenty of other comparisons. For example, he was very familiar with the the Roman army. He was very familiar with how they worked. In fact, he used that Uh, in Ephesians, he he says, put on the armor of God, didn't he? And he talks about the breastplate and the belt and all the all pieces of armor. So he's very familiar with how armies and legions and battalions work. So he could have compared us to that. You know, some members are are maybe swordsmen, and some members are archers, and other people drive the chariot. He he had other comparisons, but when he needed a metaphor, He didn't use an organization, he used a living organism, and that is the human body. Because what makes us different than a team, or a club, or an organization, is that statement, we're not only one body, we are members one of another. Okay, and that's what makes the difference. So, what he wants us to understand is as a church, we're more than a team, more than an organization, more than a club, we are a living organism where we are loving each other and under the power of the Spirit of God. And that glorifies God more and in a way that each one of us just individually relating to Christ could uh, never do. Now, in order for us to be this body, in order for us to function as a living organism, we need gifts. Because you see, in our, in our natural talents, we can only go as high as a natural organization. Everybody with me? If you want to be on a team, you can use your natural talents. If you want to be on an organization, you can use natural talents. If you want to be a club, you can use natural talents. But if you want to be a body, you need something more than the natural. You need the spiritual. You need the supernatural. And so what God does graciously in order for us to, to do what he's called us to do is he gives us spiritual gifts. And Paul talks about these in verses 6 through 8. So let's read those verses. He says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with uh, cheerfulness. Now... We're going to be covering that Paul in this passage lists seven gifts, and we're going to cover all seven of them individually. Now, tonight, uh, we're only going to get to one, and that's prophecy. We will cover the other six the next time that we get together. Um, but before I get to the individual gifts, and by the way, I'm not going to cover all the gifts. I'm not going to go into Corinthians and Ephesians and, 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 and do all the gifts. I'm, we're, we're studying Romans, so I'm just going to study the seven gifts. That Paul gives us, but before we get there, I want to ask a few general questions that I that I'm often asked. First of all, does every Christian have a gift? Is this for just a few of us, for the select, or does every Christian have a gift? Well, according to the Bible, the answer to that is absolutely yes. Every single Christian uh, has received a gift from God. I'll give you a couple of scriptures: 1 Corinthians twelve seven says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. First Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift. So he could have said, to the few is given, or, or to, uh, to, to, to many, or to most. But he didn't say that. He said, to each and every one is given the gift. So, So this is not something that's for the select few. I think that's probably... One of the most misunderstood things about the gifts, especially for new Christians, they tend to come into a church and they, they look around and they see some people and they think, well, you got you know, you to be a student of the Bible to have a gift. Or you got to be uh, really a Christian for a long time to have a gift. Or, or you got to be some kind of select few. And that's not, that's not true at all. Every single Christian has a gift. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Now, the second question I want to ask and answer is this. Are we responsible to use our gift? Are we responsible to use our gift? There's a parable in Matthew uh, 25. One of my, uh, I, I talked through the parables a few years back, and this turned out to be one of my favorite parables because it was just so full of, of, of just really good truth. It's in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And when you go home, you can, you can read the whole thing. But it tells the story of a man who went away. He evidently was a wealthy man, a rich man. And he left some servants in charge of his uh, property. Jesus starts the story out like this. It says, for it, talking about the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man who goes on a journey. And he called his servants and he entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his uh, ability. Now, before we go any further, let me point out a couple of things. A talent here is not talking about an ability, right? It's not talking about like being able to play the guitar or sing or anything like that. A talent is a measure of money, okay? That's what a talent is. And it turns out, if you do a little research, a talent is worth 6,000 denarius. One denarius is a day's wage. Okay, so for a typical laborer that works out in the in the field, doing he would rec- he would receive one denarius a day. So six thousand denarius is six thousand days' wages. So if you do the math, one talent is sixteen years' worth of salary. So that's a lot of money back then, right? I mean, if somebody came to you and said, "Hey, would you like sixteen years' worth of salary?" I'd raise my hand. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll go home and retire. I'm 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 done. Um, so he gives one five, so five times 16 is what? He gives him 90 years worth of salary. He comes to the other one, he gives him two. He gives him 32 years worth of salary. And then to the other one, he gives him one. Now watch what this says, to each one according to his ability. Now I know that you guys think, if you, if you listen to me for a while, you think that I find the sovereignty of God in everything. And that's because I find the sovereignty of God in everything, right? This is an incredible... You read this. We talked about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, how they balance out in the Bible. On this first part, you see the sovereignty of God. Watch what it says. He gives one five, another two, another one to what? Each according to his ability. This man's not interested in being fair. It's not about fairness. It's not about splitting it up equally. He wants a return on his money. He he wants to get back what he's put into it. So he gives the five to the one that he knows he's got the best chance of giving him the return. He gives the two to the guy that's kind of in the middle, and he gives the one to the one that he probably doesn't have a lot of confidence in, right? By the way, one more note about this. One thing you never have to worry about with your gift is God will never give you a gift that you're not capable of giving return on. He's never going to call you to do anything that you're not capable of doing. If you're not, if you, if you are scared to death of crowds and, 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 you know, you're not a public speaker and all that, more than likely... He's probably not going to make you get up and, and be some kind of teacher or preacher or evangelist or, or things like that. Now, now, God can do what He wants to do, but He's never going to put something on you that you don't have the ability to, to do. And that's what you see. He gave each one according to His ability, then He went, then he went away. Now, the Bible goes on, we we'll read it, and we'll skip ahead a little bit. He stays gone for a while, and He comes back. And when it comes back, it says, when He returns, He settles accounts. So he calls these three men to him and the one that he gave five talents to came forward and he says, Master, you gave me five. I made you five. Now that's good. In fact, the master says to him, well done. Way to go, man. That is, that is awesome. In fact, he maximized. In fact, what you'll see here with the next one, the one that two comes forward and he says, you gave me two and I made two. And he says the exact same thing to him. Well done. He didn't say you did pretty good. No, he said you did as good as the other guy. You maximized what I gave you. Now, the first guy had five, made five. The second guy had two, made two. You would expect the third guy to have one and make what? One. That's all God wanted. Just maximize what I gave you. So, but he didn't. It says this, He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. I did absolutely nothing with it. And his master answered him, saying, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Notice the question mark. He's saying, Is that what you know about me? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. At the very minimum, you should have put my money in the bank and made me interest, but you did nothing. And he said this, not only are you lazy, the fact that you didn't do anything with what I gave you is wrong. It's wicked. You see that? So he didn't just call him lazy. He said, you wicked. I gave you that, and you did absolutely nothing with it. So let me answer the question. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we are responsible to use the gift that God has given us. First Peter 4:10:11 puts it this way: as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, whatever He has given you. It may be a a servant, it may be an evangelist, it may be somewhere in between. But whatever He's given you, we are responsible to be a good steward of that gift. By the way, those two verses are really interesting. In those two verses is really the whole theology of, of spiritual gifts. Each Christian has received a gift. You're responsible to be a good steward of that gift for the benefit of others and the glory of God. That's the whole theology right there in 1 Peter 4. Uh, Ten and eleven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians four two. He says this. Moreover, it is required, not an option. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Okay. We've all got a gift, and we're all responsible to use that gift. Now, at this point, every single, single one of us should be thinking, okay, <laughs> how do I figure it out? Right. I need to know my my gift because I don't I don't want to be lazy. I want to use it. How do we discover our gift? Well, you remember I covered this last week. I wanted to cover it one more time. You remember last week we started talking about the gifts and I told you I was going to muddy the water because there is no definitive list of of gifts. Paul has at least four lists and each list is different. Some gifts he overlaps from list to list. Some gifts he just leaves completely out. But he never gives us a complete list. Not only that, many of the gifts are virtues that everybody should have. For example, serving. Every one of us should serve in some capacity. Giving. Every one of us should give in some capacity. Exhortation or encouragement. Every one of us should should encourage in some capacity. But there are certain people that he gives an extraordinary ability to do those things. And that is considered a gift. So what we said last week is this. If you're looking for your spiritual gift, do not focus on lists. I don't want to see anybody on the internet taking a spiritualgifttest.com where they ask you about your talents and they tell... Listen, the Holy Spirit will take you where you need to go. It it may have nothing to do with your talents or whatever you think you're good at. It may have everything. Stop focusing on lists. Start focusing on people. You want to find your gift... Ask yourself one question. Look around and find somebody whose faith needs strengthening, and you ask yourself, how can I help that person? It's as simple as that. Just start doing it. Just start doing it. I will tell you, if you've got that heart to do that, God will, I mean, He is ready, and, and He's ready to show it to you. See, our biggest problem is not knowing our spiritual gift. Our biggest problem is we lack the desire to strengthen other people's faith that's our problem is inside we tend to get lazy we're protective of our time we don't really want to get involved in in other people's lives that's our problem if we can that's why we need what we need to do is be praying not god show me my spiritual gift god give me a desire to strengthen other people's faith give me that desire give me that want to And when you do that, trust me, the game is on. It's coming and coming quickly. So I ended up last week asking this question, what about you? What about you? What does your faith, what, what do you have the faith to do? what paul said in romans 12 3 right make an honest evaluation of yourself according to the measure of faith god has given you what what faith do you have what is your measure of faith that you can go out and do something this past saturday this is going to be a terrible analogy but i just can't help it this past saturday i had to build a fire i had cut down some trees with and piled everything up with my tractor and i had some big big trees that i needed to burn and so I went out Saturday morning and anybody that's ever started a fire has this same problem. How do you how do you get it started? Right. And so uh, uh, if you've ever started a fire, a lot of people say, well, let's go get some. Uh, don't get gas, whatever you do. Don't do that. Um, I know some of y'all are, are gas. people. Do not do that. Go get diesel or kerosene. But you, you, you pour that liquid on there and it lights right up and you step back and say, boy, "Boy, that's it. But after a few minutes, that liquid all burns off, and they're just kind of sitting there charred and smoking, and it just it doesn't do the job. So maybe you go get some pine straw or some leaves and things like that, and you put them in there, and they light right up, but they don't generate enough heat to sustain the fire, right? It turns out that what you need is sticks. Anybody that's ever built a fire. So I went out there and I poured, took some pine straw and I made a little pile and I lit it. And then I started just putting sticks on it. Little sticks and then bigger sticks and bigger sticks. And then what happens is that stuff starts getting hot and it sustains the fire. I was thinking about how sometimes we have like a revival meeting. And we could do that. We could have a revival meeting here and and we could have three days and everybody would come and we'd be all excited. But sometimes those things are kind of like pouring the diesel. We light and they, they go up real quick, but then after we walk away, the fire burns down. See, what we need is sticks. That's my point. We need sticks. We need servers. We need, we need pe- just people who are willing to be that stick that can sustain that fire. Does that make any sense? We just need sticks. We, I don't need fast-burning things that get up real quick and then they're gone. I need need things that are going to burn and going to sustain and it's going to be there for a while. And by the way, I think that's one of the things that sets this church apart is that we got a lot of sticks. We got a lot of people that are just, they they don't have to be big. They don't have to be in front of everybody. They're just willing to serve. They're willing to work. They're willing to pray. They're willing to love. And that's why this fire has sustained for year after year after year. and, And I plan on it going. I know Pastor Henry does as well. One more question before we get to our gifts. How will I know my gift when I find it? How will I know my gift when I find it? Well, this one's easy. You're going to know it because you're going to be good at it. Okay? Listen, God don't play, right? He gives to each one according to their ability. He's not going to give you something that you're not any good at. Okay? He, he's, he's top quality, trust me. If he's going to give you a job, he's going to give you all the tools you need to do that. So number one, you're going to be good at it. Number two, you're going to enjoy it. One thing about a gift, when you do it, you absolutely enjoy it. And it's going to give you a contentment and a satisfaction that nothing else in this life can hardly give you. In fact, I would say this. There's not a better, more satisfying feeling in this world than to know your gift and know that you're walking in it. Know your gift and know what God has given you and know that you're giving Him a return on that gift. That is an incredibly satisfying feeling. When you have a gift, one of the things you do is you'll look forward to opportunities to use that gift. When you know, somebody asks you, hey, can you do this? If that's your gift, you're not like, oh man, why don't they ask somebody else? No, that's your gift, man. You are, you're ready. In fact, one of the things about people who have a gift it's not stressful to them at all. They don't, they don't get tired. It, it almost seems like they're tapped into some type of energy source that other people just aren't tapped into. People will come up to them and say, man, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you spend that much time. I don't know how you serve like that. And they just look at you like, well, it's really not a big deal. And they do it week after week and month after month and year after year. And it's like I said, it's like they're tapped into this energy source. Um, in fact, that's exactly what they are tapped into. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that's in me or with me. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So when you have that gift, it's, you are tapped in almost directly into the inexhaustible energy and creativity of, of, of the Spirit. It is an amazing thing. So God's grace doesn't just give us the want to do something. It gives us the absolute power to, to do that thing. Once again, when we minister in our gift, you ain't got to worry about getting tired or stressed or anything like that. Trust me, the Holy Spirit will absolutely empower you to fulfill that. One more thing that I get asked sometimes is, when does a Christian receive their gift? When do you get it? Uh, This is something I can't answer. Because the Bible does not say when you receive your gift. It doesn't say that at the moment that you are born again. There's probably two options. You probably get it at the moment you're born again, uh, or you get it at some later point. <clears throat> I, I, can't, I can't answer that. I, I can tell you from personal experience, I'll tell you my story. <clears throat> um, I started teaching when I was probably around 20 years old. And I taught till I was 45, <clears throat> around 2007, 2008. And for 25 years, I taught, uh, before Kathy and I got married, I was teaching, uh, or or right when we got married, before we had kids, I was teaching in youth groups and things like that. And then when our kids were born, I taught Jesus Kids, and I taught Royal Rangers, and I taught middle school classes, and I taught high school classes, and I taught men's classes. So for 25 years, I taught, but it wasn't a gift. It, It just wasn't a gift. I did it out of duty. I didn't really like it. I did it because, what did I say last week? Sometimes you just got to put your hand to the plow, right? There's things that need to be done. To be honest with you, I don't think I was that good at it. And I didn't enjoy it. It was kind of stressful. But, you know, my boys were in middle school, so I taught middle school. My boys were in Jesus Kids. I taught, you know, we taught Jesus Kids. But in 2007, 2008, something changed. Something just incredibly changed. And from 2007 to now, for the last 14 years, I've been teaching under a gift. Now, you may say, well, how do you know that? Oh, oh, I know it. And it's got nothing to do with me being good at it. That's, that's up to you. I know it's my gift because I never get tired of it. it. It is my passion. It turned from being a duty, something that I just had to do, to something that I wanted to do. It turned from being something that I was stressed out about to something that I can't wait till tomorrow morning when I start the next one. And all the preparation and all that is probably twice as much as enjoyable as actually getting up here and doing it. it just everything changed for me. And, uh, and I've got, you know, if you want to hear the whole story, I could tell you sometime about some of the things that went on around that time. But I know that something changed. Now, here's the problem. Did I receive that gift then, or did I have it for 25 years and just neglected it? I don't know the answer to that question. I can tell you this, I ain't looking back. (laughs) And I would encourage you not to look back, right? The point is, let's get going today, where you are today. If you don't know your spiritual gift today, let's find it and let's get to work. All right, with the time we have left, we're going to cover one spiritual gift tonight And that is prophecy. Now, as we said, there's seven listed in this passage. Uh, Six of them we will cover the next time we get together. But tonight we're going to cover prophecy. And I kind of wanted to cover it by itself because it is by far the toughest one. Okay, it is by far that takes the most uh, time to to cover. So let's read it once again in verse 6. Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If your gift is prophecy, then do that in proportion, excuse me, to our faith. Okay, so let's talk about this, and let's talk about some generic things first. First of all, what does the gift of prophecy refer to? Well, the word that's used there in the Greek is propheteo, and it means to, to speak forth in divinely empowered forthtelling or foretelling. Now, The essence of prophecy is exactly what you would think it is. It's just like the Old Testament prophets. It's basically somebody saying, this is what God says, right? It's it's, thus saith the Lord. You are are speaking for God. Now, there are a couple of aspects to this, and I want to make sure a lot of times when you talk about prophecy, some people only think about uh, predicting the future that somebody prophesies over you and they predict the future, right? And and predicting the future is can be part or foretelling the future. I wouldn't say predicting it. You're actually telling, if it's a word from God, you're telling what God has said is going to happen. That's part of it, um, but that's not all of it. Um, prophecy was much more what we call forthtelling where you stand up and you say, you guys need to repent. You, you you got sin in your life right now. So prophecy can about, can be about the here and now or it can be about the the what's going to to come. Again, a good example, just think about an Old Testament prophet, right? A lot of times you go read, for example, Isaiah, the vast majority of Isaiah, he's not predicting the future or foretelling the future. He's just calling the people to Repentance. Now, for example, you get Isaiah 53, he, he prophesies about what's going to happen to the Messiah in some 600 years to come. So that is a part of it, but you want to make sure you keep those in, in balance. Now, the big question we have is, is this gift to be exercised today? Is this gift still in, um, in action or is it still being used today? Now, I'm going to tell you this, uh, by, and, and I want you to understand, listen, I don't know if y'all know that, but there is some crazy people out there. Do y'all know that? I hope y'all know that. There is some crazy people out there. Listen, there are people out there that are calling themselves Christian, and I don't think they ever even open this book. They live their whole lives by feelings and intuitions, and and this prophet said this, and this prophet said that, and they never ever get in and look for themselves what the Word of God says. So we're going to... Them people are are crazy, all right? Let's just set them aside for now. And let's come into good Bible-believing Christians. Even good Bible-believing Christians can disagree about whether prophecy is still active today. And when I say Bible-believing Christians, I mean Christians who would stand here and say, this is the Word of God, the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Even people like that can disagree on whether this um, gift is still active. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to give you both sides of it, okay? I'm going to give you both sides of the argument because it's only fair. And by the way, both sides of the argument are pretty good. Um, and then at the end, I'll tell you what I think, okay? That Does sound, that sound okay? All right, so let's start out with the people that don't think it's still around for the day today. So there are those who believe that prophecy has ceased, and these people are called cessationists, okay? They, it's a play on the word seized or stopped. They're called cessationists, and they would say, Prophecy is not around anymore. It was it was for a particular time in the church, but it's not around. So they believe that prophets were foundational to the establishment of the church. Okay, that other words, when in the day of Pentecost and for the next, say, 150 or so years, you needed prophets. But after the, the church was established and the word of God was brought in, you know, the canon of Scripture was brought together. After that, you don't need any prophets, okay? Now, where do they get this from? Well, let's read a couple scriptures. Ephesians 2.20 says this, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the what? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, you know, Scooter here is a builder. I know we got some other builders. If you've ever built a house, you build the foundation and it stops, right? Everybody understands you don't keep building the foundation, right? You build the foundation and then the, the house is built on top of that. Well, that's what Paul is referring to here. You've got a foundation and the church, the household of God is built and built and built generation after generation on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, here's the thing. We know that there are no more apostles, okay? That is one gift that I really don't have or one office that there does not exist today, okay? And here's the reason I know. Because Scripture tells us there are four qualifications for an apostle. Number one, they have to have seen the risen Jesus. Number two, they have to have been chosen or appointed by Jesus. Number three, they have to have been taught their doctrine by Jesus. And number four, they have to perform miracles, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 is the sign of an apostle. If you, can, if you can meet those four things, all four of them, then you can be an apostle. Everybody with me? There's not any more apostles. That office has, has ceased, okay? So, we know that. So, those people would say, well, now, wait a minute. If the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and there's no more apostles, then there's no more prophets. See, what you got to remember, let's think about the early church, Let's say it's, uh, it's, it's 57 AD, and we're all meeting here, right? We're, we're getting together, and, and do you understand there is no Bible? In the early church, you didn't have this. There, the letters are still being written, and, and they're being passed around. You know, somebody stands up and says, hey, we got a new letter from Paul. He just, he just wrote one to the church at Corinth. we got a copy of it. Well, come up here and read it. But that's, that's all they had. Are you with me? They didn't have scripture. They didn't have somebody who could get up and and preach, okay? So that took a while for that to develop. Now, it happened fairly fast. For example, Clement of Rome, uh, who died in A.D. 95, he, he said that he had already read eight New Testament letters when he died. So personally, he had already read eight of them. Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, I mean, he knew personally the Apostle John. He died in, in AD 108 and he had personally read 15 books of the New Testament already. He had read all, He had seen them and read them himself. By the time you get to 170 AD, 22 out of the 27 books had already been validated by God through the church as part of the canon of scripture. So by the time you get to the late second century, you've pretty much got the Bible. But what about those 200, you know, say the 150, 160, 170 years since Christ died? They needed prophets. You see, the New Testament prophets filled the gap, if you would, by proclaiming God's word because they didn't have it in written form. All right? Now, let me give you an example. I want you to, I'm going to read this passage of Scripture, and I want you to remember that Paul is writing this to a church with no scripture. They don't have a Bible. In fact, this is his first letter to the Corinthian church. So they are getting together and their are meeting. Every Sunday they get together and they meet. And he's writing this letter. He's heard some things about them. And you always got to keep that in mind. He's writing to a church that they don't have what we have. They're not able to go in here and say, wow, you know, what? here's we, we need to do this. They don't have this. Now watch what he says. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So the idea was we would get together and somebody would say, well, I've got a word. I've got a word. I've got a revelation. And what Paul is saying is this, do it in order, right? Don't try to talk over one another and everybody shouting, you know, two or three. And then it told the rest of us, we need to weigh what is said. Weigh what is said. So what these people would say, and we'll come back to that in a minute, what the people would say that says that the gift has ceased, they would say that once we have the Bible, the Word of God, then we don't need revelation anymore. This is it, right? What did, what did uh, 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 Paul say in his letter to Timothy? This is God-breathed, sufficient for doctrine and exhortation and teaching and discipline and everything we need is in this Bible. So the cessationists would say, we don't need prophets anymore. We don't need anybody speaking forth the word of God. In fact, prophecy, they would say, has changed from speaking new revelation to speaking completed revelation. In other words, what they would say is the preacher or the evangelist or the teacher who gets up here and opens this Bible and speaks the word of God, that's prophecy. Right, Because that's what a prophet does. They speak forth the word of God. So when I get up here and I turn to a book of the Bible and I say, let's read this. That's what they would say, you're prophesying. You're speaking the word of God from the word that he gave us. So they would say prophecy has changed. In fact, there's some support for that. I want you to notice a very interesting verse, Second 2 Peter 2.1. Peter, talking about the Old Testament, says, There were false prophets among the people... Just as there will be false teachers among you. You notice a transition. He doesn't say there were false prophets in the Old Testament and there will be false prophets in the New Testament. He said they had false prophets, you'll have false teachers. You'll have people that'll sit up and, and have this word and they'll twist it and they'll change it to meet what they want it to be. So they would look at that as evidence to say, see, it's changed. So that is, now listen... Let me just say this. People write books on these subjects, okay? In fact, when I, at the end here, I'm going to give you two books. And you can, you can go buy these books and read about it all you want to. So I'm giving you a very condensed argument for both sides of this. But that's basically the argument for cessationists. Now, on the other side are what we call continuationists. And that speaks for itself, right? They would say that the gift of prophecy has not ceased that it continues even to today. Now, a continuationist, a true continuationist would say this, that prophecy is still active today, but they would always state that it is never, never, never to be considered equal with this. Everybody with me? They would say you still have prophecy today, but you never, ever equate it or put it above uh the word of of god so let's look at a couple uh, scriptures about this acts two seventeen, a, a scripture that we all know very well in the last days it shall be god declares that i'll pour my spirit out on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy now we've said this before the last days are from when jesus came the first time to when jesus came the second time or when he comes the second time right that's the last days we are living in the last days and, and Peter says here, in the last days, quoting Joel, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So that infers to me that prophecy would, it's not just in the last, he doesn't say in the first part of the last days, or for the first 10% of the last, no, he says in the, in the last days. So that sounds like prophecy is not only not limited to a certain time, it also sounds like prophecy is not limited to a few but available to your sons and your daughters. Let me give you another one, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 4. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, remember, he's writing this letter to a church that doesn't have scripture. So that makes sense, right? That he would say, desire that you would speak the word of God. But I want you to watch his reasoning for that. He goes on, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. See, the point of prophecy there was Upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I need as much upbuilding and encouragement and consolation as the early church did. I still need that today, right? And, and that was the purpose of that gift. So it again, that certainly sounds like prophecy would not be confined just to the founders of the church, but available to the body in general. And again, notice the ministry of prophecy, building up, encouraging, and consoling. Building up, encouraging, and consoling. Again, that sounds more than foundational to me. It sounds like something that the church will have as it's being built. I'll give you one more. First Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So Paul says there's coming a day when prophecy will cease. It will pass away. That day is when the perfect comes. Okay, now the question then is, okay, well, what is the perfect? Well, let's read on. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then when the perfect comes, we'll see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have known. Now that doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that that's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? Some people might say that he's that he's talking about the word of God, but but the word of God is here, and I don't see him face to face. I don't know even. I still see through a mirror dimly, right? So again, I think this infers, of course, uh, that that the the gift of prophecy is going to continue until the second coming of of christ okay so that is the argument for continuationism right and i'll give you like i said i'll give you some books here in just a moment now here's what i'm going to say first this is what we can both agree on if you're here tonight and you're a cessationist and you think boy i don't think it, it, it it exists anymore if you're a continuation you might say it does here's what we can absolutely agree on right scripture always takes priority Scripture always takes... Everybody agrees on that. Even the people that believe in prophecy, Bible-believing Christians understand that this always takes priority. God would never prophesy something and tell you to do anything that's against His Word. He would never, ever do that, okay? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians real quick. Notice what that said. I I mentioned it earlier. I want to mention it one more time. Let two or three prophets speak, Paul says... Let the others weigh what is said. Now, that's really interesting. Paul says when someone prophesies, he doesn't focus on whether they're a true prophet or a false prophet. He doesn't say focus on the person. He says focus on what they said. Now, that's pretty good, right? Because we, somebody might prophesy and we might say, well, I know that guy. I don't believe nothing he's saying because I know him. And other people might believe everything he says because they know him. Paul doesn't say focus on the person. He says focus on what is said. In fact, that word in the Greek is diakronetoson or something like that. And it literally means weigh it out. The whole idea here is we should always view prophecy with skepticism. You always view prophecy with some level uh, of skepticism. In other words, don't just accept it. You check it out. You test it. You assess it. So it tells us, by the way, that even in the early church, Paul was letting them know he never expected the gift of prophecy to be the final authoritative word of God. Only this is. Only this is. Even in the new church, he, he understood that. By the way, do you ever see the Bible saying, test the Bible, test the word of God, weigh the... No. No, he doesn't do that. Only prophecy and, and it comes right out, 1 Thessalonians five twenty twenty one. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Again, that prophecy may prove true or not true because the human channel is fallible. People just make mistakes. Listen, I... And I'm going to talk about this in, in a few weeks, how to tell false teachers from true teachers. Do you understand even the best teachers will make mistakes? Pastor Henry, and I know as long as he's done it, he'll still tell you that from time to time he'll make a mistake. Say something, I shouldn't have said that. So the best of us, best of us are just human beings. We're not perfect. You shouldn't believe everything that comes out of my mouth. You should be like the Bereans and you should weigh it and test it against the word of God because I'm just I'm just a person. I'm not perfect, okay? And so that's what Paul's saying. The human channel is always sinful, Prophecy is not scripture, it is under scripture and should always be tested by scripture. So be very wary, Christians, if someone ever comes up to you and claims to have a message from God, okay, be very, very careful, be very wary, skeptical of that, especially if they're ever telling you anything that would go against this word, okay? All right, now, I'm going to answer this, what do you think? I know it's what everybody is is probably thinking, what do you think? I tend to believe that prophecy is valid for today. I just don't see in Scripture a convincing argument that it would have ended. And I think there are times when, when prophecy... I don't think God is giving new revelation in the sense of new truth. I think every truth He's ever wanted us to know is written down right here. He's not coming up and saying, I got a new truth that nobody else knows. He's not doing that. But I do think there may be times when God wants to, the Holy Spirit wants to reveal something to us that we wouldn't find in, in Scripture. For example, there's, a, there's a, a, some stories told about Charles Spurgeon. He was preaching one day, and right in the middle of the sermon, he just looked out and said, Young man, the gloves in your pocket, they're not paid for. And they weren't. He was dead on. <laughs> Scared that boy to death, right? Now, some people might say, well, is that, is that prophecy? Or maybe it's a word of knowledge. I don't know, right? I don't want to look at the list. I'm tired of looking at lists. If if God gives you something like that and you know it's from God, then I'm not one to tell you. But I'm just saying there may be times where he wants to reveal things to us that you're not going to find in, in Scripture. There are times when the Holy Spirit may give us something that's given for a particular moment that brings conviction or uh, exhortation or builds up the church or consoles someone, right? Because there's things like that that can really make a a difference. I was uh, one time standing back here, right back there uh, where Jim is, right back there by the sound booth, and I don't remember if it was a Wednesday or Sunday, and I was sitting there, and I looked over, and I saw somebody. And immediately, I felt like, I'll go tell that person, that you're proud of them. Because I knew this person had gone through some things and they hadn't given up their faith. They had stayed strong. And I just, I thought, go, go tell them. Now, as soon as I felt that, I tested it against the word, which, I, which by the way says, encourage one another, exhort one another. And I thought, okay. And I walked over there and I just said, hey, I've been, I just wanted you to know I've been watching you. I know what you went through and I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Let me tell you, that person started crying, and I started crying, and, and I walked away, and I thought, wow, that was the right thing to do, right? Do you understand? I could have walked over to that person and said, thus says the Lord, but I didn't, because I got no idea if that was the, or the Lord. I got no clue. And I'm not going to say something like, thus saith the Lord. By the way, you don't have to. Do you understand if that person's sitting there and the, and the Spirit is really behind that and He wants you to go tell that person, I'm proud of you, that, that, that message is going to connect with that person like that. You don't have to say, thus saith the Lord. They know it's the Lord. Are you with me? Be careful. Be careful how we use our words and, and things that we attribute. If the Lord puts something on your heart to tell somebody, just tell them. You don't have to say, thus or the Lord. I feel like the Lord's saying just tell them. If it's the real deal, trust me, the Spirit will connect with their spirit. I promised I'd give you two books. Uh, the first one is The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament of the Day by Wayne Grudem. That is a continuationist argument. He, will, he wrote a whole book on, on why the gift of prophecy is for today. Uh, Richard Gaffin wrote a book called Perspectives on Pentecost. He wrote the uh, cessationist side of it. They're both very good men, very good Bible-believing men... They just happen to get disagree on this, uh, on this one particular uh, point. All right, I ran a little long tonight. I hope I didn't keep people uh, uh, too long. Hey, one announcement. No Wednesday night service next week, okay, for Thanksgiving. So that's the night before Thanksgiving. We're not having any service. Everybody say it with me. No Wednesday night service next week, right? Because if you're like me, I will completely forget about it the moment I walk out of this uh, building. Let's pray. Father... Lord, we love you. Uh, we thank you as we, always do, as we always do for your incredible, incredible word. Lord, I pray tonight as I did last week. I don't get it all. I don't understand it all. I don't have perfect understanding. I'm, I feel like I'm looking through a mirror dimly. I, I, I'm, everything we have right now is just partial. We're just doing the very best we can. But this one thing I know... <laughs> I know that it is your will for every single person in this body to have the desire to strengthen another person's faith. There is no doubt in my mind. That is as clear as a bell. You want every part of the body to care about every other part of the body. You want every part of the body to rejoice when the other part rejoices. You want every part to hurt when the other part hurts. God, you want us to feel and care for one another. I know that. God, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know their gift, and I pray first and foremost that you do a work in their heart, that they just become a person that has an an unquenchable desire to help other people. And they're completely open to whatever that is. God, I know, I know when that happens. I know everything changes we love you we thank you for all you do you are our lord you're our savior you're our god and we'll give all praise and glory for everything that you're doing in this body in jesus name amen